Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel. It's good to have all of you here in the theater. And also, I want to welcome those who are watching online. Those, for those of you who are here, please put your cell phones on vibrate uh, or turn them off completely and try to refrain from texting for the next hour. I want to thank our sponsors, Gazette Newspapers and the Courtyard Marriott that makes this lecture series possible. It's always a pleasure when we have a lecture by our own people. And tonight, we have a duo, Rob Mortensen and Katie Finch. And they're going to discuss conservation projects protecting birds in the northern Marianas Islands. So with a name like Finch, you better study birds. Uh, <clears throat> Rob Mortensen has been here since before the aquarium opened. He joined the aquarium in 1997, and right now he is the assistant curator of birds and mammals, and he's been instrumental in establishing the aquarium's Guam Kingfisher Breeding Program, which is part of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums Species Survival Plans for this species. Before coming to this aquarium, he was a zookeeper at the Santa Barbara Zoo, and he was a senior aquarist at the John Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And before that, he was in the Army, and he was an attack helicopter crew chief. And before that, he was at Western Illinois studying. Katie Finch has been part of the bird and mammal team at the aquarium since 2015. She previously worked as a research trainer at the Pinniped Cognition and Sentry System Lab in Santa Cruz. And it was there where she trained Arctic seals and California sea lions to be active participants in sensory hearing tests. She attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she studied ecology and evolutionary biology. And it was during that time that she gained her first experience working with birds in the field. Please join me in welcoming Rob Mortensen and Katie Finch. Um, thanks so much for having us tonight, you guys. Um, Rob and I tonight are going to talk a little bit about an awesome experience that we've had uh, over the last four years. We've actually had a pretty amazing opportunity to um, travel pretty much halfway around the world to help out uh, with a really incredible conservation project. Um, and that's a project that Rob was able to sort of procure as uh, to add on to part of the aquarium's conservation um, repertoire here. Um, but kind of before I go into the specifics of the project, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about islands and island ecosystems in general and kind of why they're so unique. Um, I think all of us pretty know what the definition of an island is. So it's a small body of land surrounded by water. Um, but what makes island ecosystems so unique is just how isolated they are. And the evolution of organisms on islands um, really, really plays into that. So because islands tend to be so isolated, um, organisms that are the first ones to colonize it really get an opportunity to uh, kind of distribute into a variety of different niches and evolve and adapt into those niches without a lot of competition. And so because of that, islands tend to hold a lot of very, very unique species. They tend to have a high rate of endemic species or species that are just unique to very small areas. Um, and so a lot of the uh, evolution of an island uh, ecosystem depends really heavily on who those first colonizers of an island are. Um, oftentimes, as far as megafauna go, I don't know if this guy's working. There we go. <laughs> uh, birds are the first ones to, <laughs> to kind of arrive on the scene. Um, so the reasons are pretty obvious. Birds are able to fly. Um, so a lot of times, birds are able to access areas like islands um, more readily than other types of animals. So for a lot of times, the first reptiles or amphibians or mammals that arrive in an island ecosystem are brought there by storms, by drifting in on a piece of driftwood, something like that. But birds are easily able to kind of 
uh, disperse among island ecosystems. And because of that, islands tend to be places where you find a lot of amazing bird species and really unique bird species. Um, but because, again, islands are ecosystems where organisms develop in such an, such an isolated area with so little competition, birds also tend to be, island birds tend to be really, really susceptible to extinction, um, and especially uh, to being disrupted by invasive species. I'm still not hitting it hard enough. Oh, there we go. Um, so this is a graph that I found of sort of the last 700 years of bird extinction and kind of you can see um, as far as where extinction is most prevalent in birds, islands tend to be the place where, um, where you see the most extinction of, of birds. So um, I'm still having a hard time with this. How do I do the pointing? Oh, there we go. Sorry. Um, so you can see Hawaii is kind of the capital of bird extinction in the last 700 years. If you can kind of compare, the mainland United States is way over here. Um, and a lot of these other really high extinction areas include New Zealand, Madagascar, other island environments. Um, and one of the kind of biggest examples of um, an island ecosystem really disrupted by uh, an invasive species is the island of Guam. And I'm gonna actually have Rob talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Push my microphone to sit down here a second. Can you hear me okay? No? Not yet? Hold on. There we go. There we go. Okay, so Guam, I'm gonna talk about the sinister part of the, the program here, and that's gonna be the brown tree snake. Guam is a tiny island that's located not too far from the Philippines, but it's out there in the Mariana Island Trench. Um, and it forms a long chain that you'll see a little bit uh, into the presentation. And it did have a lot of endemic birds to it, birds that aren't found anywhere else. But it also had a lot of cargo going through it from mainland Asia and also from Australia and all over the Pacific. And so it was ripe for having introduced species. Um, that cargo actually was introduced at the end of the war and it brought in this animal. This is the brown tree snake and this is the one that we worried probably the most about in all these Asian and Pacific islands that you find out there. And this animal got onto Guam and in very short time uh, wiped out, extirpated, nine species of the 11 species of birds that lived on Guam. So it was a very rapid spreading and successful arboreal hunter living in the trees and eating anything that it ran across. In um, modern times now in Guam, there's a pretty good program there to try and deal with these, but we'll never get rid of them all. Um, we can maybe control the number. These snakes have one of the largest populations per acre of any reptile in the world. There was lots of food there, at least initially, and there still is quite a bit of food there for these. And there can be 10,000 snakes in a single acre of, uh, of land. Um, they get into transformers, they short out the power grid, they cause a lot of, a lot of damage um, in addition to the damage that they've already done on Guam. <clears throat> so all but two of the island's forest birds became extinct, as we talked about. And uh, that was you know, due to the brown tree snake exclusively. So it was one single species that had a very, very large impact on an island ecosystem. These animals didn't have a defense for it. Uh, they were just naive to the threat that was posed by the brown tree snake. And uh, came really, really close to losing every species of bird, um, a forest bird on the island. Oh, no, I'm having difficulty. Uh, so there were two survivors, uh, the Guam kingfisher, that's this bird here on the left, and then the Guam rail, the bird on your right. They were two animals that were in really, really low numbers, and Department of Fish and Wildlife and DAWR, which is Guam's um, Department of Wildlife, basically, they contacted zoos and, and said, can you help us out with this? We're going to lose all the species on the island. And I believe it was Philadelphia Zoo that went in first and went and took uh, the remaining birds off the island, every one of them they could find, and started captive breeding programs with them. Now that sounds pretty simple, like something that you would do um, and you would just immediately have success with that. But it took a lot of work to figure out the husbandry of the animals in order to get to this point. 
And the Guam rails have been introduced to new islands that they didn't historically live on that are free that don't have the brown tree snakes. So they've already been released in fairly large numbers. I'm not sure what the total number of Guam rails that was taken off of Guam was, um, but kingfishers, there was 29 birds that they were able to save. And that's what they started off. That was what we call the founder stock of the birds. And um, from that 29 original birds, we're up to about 135 birds in zoos in North America. And there is a zoo in Guam that has them as well. So from 29, we've grown to 135 in the span of about uh, 30 years, a little bit less. But we are planning on doing reintroduction. So that is a positive, as is this positive. <laughs> Uh, we dropped Tylenol-filled mice on the island now, and we found that the brown tree snake is susceptible to Tylenol, so that was good news. Um, we parachute the mice, because otherwise when the mice hit, the Tylenol squeezes out. Um, so it's not uncommon to see airdrops of planes and helicopters flying over Guam and dropping parachuting uh, Tylenol-filled mice. The brown tree snakes find them, they eat them, and they don't survive the experience. At least that's what we hope. Uh, but it's a multi-tiered approach to dealing with brown tree snakes. There's such an epidemic there, uh, and they are venomous, mildly venomous to humans, but it is possible to die from a brown tree snake bite, but they're pretty mild. Um, but there's a lot of damage with these animals. So rather than having to parachute mice in to take them out, uh, Prevention is a big thing. So there are snake traps. There are dogs that go and sniff the planes whenever they land on the Pacific Islands, and it's a pretty robust program so that when we fly into Saipan like we do to do this program every year, the dogs come out and check the plane and the baggage before we ever depart with it. All the people who work at the airport are trained, unlike here, where we're all trained, if you see a rattlesnake, leave it alone, right? It's a good thing, agreed? There, not so. If you see a brown tree snake, run it over. So. The, the people there that are driving the trucks that are pulling the trailers around the airport are constantly on the lookout for these snakes. And there have been many instances where they, these snakes and other snakes have gotten to the island and the uh, people are pretty vigilant about making sure that they uh, don't let them off the airport. The Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands is um, this chain that runs all the way up here. And Guam is not actually part of that. Rhoda is the southern extent of it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the chain and how we translocate animals. And I'm going to turn it over to Katie to talk to you a little bit about opening crew. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about these northern Mariana Islands. Um, so they're, like Rob said, just north of Guam. Um, and so they, they share a lot of really similar traits as far as what the habitat is like, what the kind of geography of the islands are like. Um, the kind of main three islands as far as the Northern Mariana, uh, they actually refer to it as the um, Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, so CNMI for short, um, which you, they actually they are a Commonwealth of the United States, which was something I didn't really know. Um, uh, but the main three islands that have people on them are Saipan, Tinian, and Rhoda. Um, Saipan and Tinian are the two islands that Rob and I uh, traveled to, so we're gonna kind of focus a little more on, on those two islands. Um, if you know anything about Saipan or Tinian, it's probably because you know a little bit about World War II history um, and the kind of sad history that um, is, is present on these islands. So Saipan and Tinian both played a really large role uh, in World War II, some of the bloodiest battles of World War II happened on Saipan and Tinian, um, including tens of thousands of civilian lives lost. Um, it was originally occupied by Japan after World War I. It kind of changed hands to the U.S. Um, during World War II, again, in a, in a really horrible um, series of battles. Uh, and then, so this is a picture of um, Saipan, and this is a picture of Tinian, which is a, a, one of the smaller islands from the island chain, which actually, most of the natural forest was pretty much mowed down to make room for airfields on Tinian during World War II. Um, and then Tinian, Tinian was actually the island where the atomic bombs were launched that um, ended up at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so you actually, this is a picture uh, that I took, you can still see the bomb pits 
um, where those bombs were launched. So there's a lot of sad history affiliated with, with Saipan and Tinian. Um, in the meantime, they, you know, there's a rich sort of history of, of the more native people of Saipan and Tinian, which are primarily Chamorro or Carolinian, um, who also lost um, thousands of civilians during World War II there. Um, one of the things about traveling to Saipan or Tinian especially um, is there are still quite a few World War II relics around the island. So Rob and I actually both had to go through a mandatory uh, unexploded ordinance detection training in order to even go to Tinian, um, which essentially just meant having to look through lots of slideshows of what an unexploded ordinance looks like and how not to touch it um, and then take a test on it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting place. Um, nowadays, it looks fairly different. So this is a picture of Saipan. Um, it's sort of a tropical metropolis. Um, it's an area that's heavily, um, heavy in tourism for Japan and China. Um, although, like I said, it is part of the United States. It's a commonwealth of the United States. So one of the funny things when you're walking around Saipan, you see all these stores that say, I heart USA everywhere and it's a big it's a big thing for Japanese and Chinese tourists to go and buy t-shirts that say I heart USA even though it's kind of a stone's throw away from Asia um, but yeah it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting place and it's as far as the environment goes it is also home like Guam was to many really interesting beautiful forest birds um, and if you were kind of paying attention to what Rob was talking a little bit earlier about Guam, a lot of these birds might look pretty familiar. So a lot of the native forest birds of um, the Northern Marianas Islands, Saipan and Tinian, uh, are fairly similar to a lot of the species that went extinct on Guam. A lot of them were just varieties or subspecies that inhabited Guam that also inhabited, um, that also inhabit now the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, but like the birds on Guam, these guys are, they're tropical island birds and endemic birds, and they are also very susceptible to um, invasive species, including this neighbor of theirs, the brown tree snake. Um, so in Saipan, or excuse me, in the Northern Mariana Islands, there have been about 90 confirmed sightings of the tree snake in the last 10 years, um, which is way, way less than Guam, but still a huge concern because the rate at which the birds disappeared in Guam was catastrophic. It was over about 20 years that a lot of those bird species disappeared. Um, so one of the responses to that and something that um, was established in order to try to kind of get ahead of that problem uh, was the MAC program. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about. So uh, MAC stands for Marianas Avifauna Conservation. And it is a facet of um, a larger nonprofit called Pacific Bird Conservation. Um, and Pacific Bird Conservation was started um, by two retired curators, um, one of the Memphis Zoo and one of the Honolulu Zoo. So Peter Lescombe from Honolulu and Herb Roberts from Memphis. Um, and they essentially teamed up with US Fish and Wildlife, CNMI uh, Fish and Wildlife, and decided to kind of get together a plan to sort of, like I said, be proactive and preventative um, in order to protect the birds of the Northern Mariana Islands from meeting the same fate as the birds of Guam. And so there's kind of two main facets to this project, uh, to the MAC project. One is captive breeding within zoos, sort of like what's being done um, with the Guam Kingfisher, but again, in more of a preventative context. So basically creating insurance populations of these birds should we have another disaster, kind of eco-disaster like the brown tree snake in the Northern Marianas. Um, so all of the zoos participating, I wanna say there are now like 15 or so zoos um, involved in this project are um, involved in captive breeding programs within their zoos, taking care of these birds. And then also the second part of this project and the project that Rob and I participated in the last four years is translocation. So essentially taking small populations of the birds from their islands on the northern, uh, in the Northern Marianas, Saipan, Tinian, Rhoda, and moving them to safer islands farther away from the brown tree snake where um, really far away from people. Um, so if we go real quick back to that map, let's see if I can get there, sorry. 
Um, so you can see the Saipan, Tinian, and Rota, these kind of primary islands of the Northern Marianas, are also accompanied by all of these really remote northern islands. Now each of these islands has an average of like 10 or less people living on them. And for the most part, uh, we're just inhabited by um, uh, livestock or you know, in, in other kinds of invasive species, things like wild goats, pigs, that were introduced by people long ago. Um, so the first part of this project, in order to translocate these birds safely to the Northern Marianas, was to get rid of all those kind of invasive species and make some of these northern islands a really pristine habitat for these birds to thrive in. Um, and again, these are the idea behind moving these birds to these islands is just to create insurance populations. So it's kind of going along in tandem with having these captive breeding programs is allowing these birds to reproduce and kind of live out in a in a natural habitat of their own, um, although not quite in where they, where they started. Um, so I wanted to hopefully show a video, actually, that the Toledo Zoo made, because um, I think it does a really good job of kind of describing um, how the program works. Um, so I'm just going to go, it's a little bit long, but I'm going to go ahead and play it, and then Rob and I will kind of get into a little bit more about the field work. when the last individual of a living species breathes his last breath, another heaven and another earth must pass before another shall be. One of the things that we have to remember is once these animals are gone, they're gone. They're not coming back. And it's critical that we take those steps now to ensure their survival. The thing that we need to do is maintain their habitats and keep these animals in the wild. That's where they belong, and we need to put our efforts and to make sure that these species have habitat and a home to survive. So islands in general have high concentration of endemic species. Islands are also very susceptible to species loss because of their small size, small populations. Species are impacted by a variety of issues. Some of those issues are uh, weather conditions, disease, hunting by uh, local people. Um, other issues include the introduction of alien species. Uh, Guam had a, a major species die-off in the last 30 years, and that was caused by the brown tree snake. In the course of 30 years, 10 of the 12 forest bird species uh, went extinct. There were two species, the Guam rail and Guam kingfisher, that survived. And they survived primarily because Guam had the initiative to request the assistance of American zoos. American zoos came in, brought them into captivity, and put them in captive breeding programs. Because of that, today, we still have the Guam rail and uh, Guam kingfisher. In 2004, uh, CNMI requested the assistance of AZA zoos to assist in developing captive breeding program for the birds in the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas Islands. Guam is at the southern terminus of the Marianas chain and is very close to the main islands of CNMI, the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas Islands. They have had approximately 90 sightings, confirmed sightings of brown tree snakes in the islands. And so there's a real concern, like Guam, that in a short period of time, they could possibly lose their birds. 
One of the initial focuses of our project was to bring birds into captivity. We identified seven species and we were gonna bring them in, set them up into captive breeding programs as a safeguard against the brown tree snake. The MAC program, Mariana Avifauna Conservation Program, evolved from an earlier program that was active in the 90s, the MARS program. Uh, there were two collecting expeditions in the 90s for captive breeding of Mariana species. In the in about 2004, uh, we were contacted by the CNMI, Fish and Wildlife Department, because of our previous experience out here and because we still had an active program for that, captive program, to set up similar programs to breed other native species in captivity. Wound up coming up in 2006 on our first trip out here to collect birds. Uh, at that time, I think we had six zoos participating. Now it's up to about 13 that are coming out on the trips and in excess of 20 that are involved in the captive breeding programs. Of the captive breeding programs we're working on currently, it would be Mariana Fruit Dove, White-Throated Ground Dove, Rufus Fantail, Tinian Monarch, Golden White Eye, and Bridled White Eye. That list may expand in the future to some endangered species, but that's the ones we're working with currently. And I can't say that they're all a roaring success, but we are learning as we go along. None of these species, to the best of my knowledge, have ever been held in captivity or tried attempts made to breed them in captivity until our program started that. Because of the expertise and resources of zoos, we felt that the types of skills that we brought to developing, catching, and implementing a captive breeding program, it would also be beneficial to utilize those same skills to do translocation. Fortunately, CNMI has a whole series of northern islands that are uninhabited, or if there are people on the islands, typically the population is less than 10. Fish and Wildlife has been working over the years to remove the ungulates, the, the goats, and other animals off of the islands allowing the habitat to be restored. In 2004, we implemented the MAC program. Herb Roberts from Memphis Sioux and myself organized and developed the program that brought in species for captive breeding and also started the translocation effort. We developed along with fish and wildlife biologists and other various professional consultants, a team that put together a long-range plan for conservation of birds on the islands, maintain them in their natural environment. And the safest way to do that would be to translocate um, seed populations to suitable northern islands that are uninhabited by man. No man equals no snakes. So that's what we shot for. We call that translocation. We have a number of islands designated as sanctuary islands. We so up to date, all we've done is move birds to Surigan. We're through with Surigan, now we need to move on. We're going to Guguan. And that's, that's this year's expedition. We're going to move Tinian Monarch and Bridal White Eye to Guguan. Uh, the Tinian Monarch obviously is a, an important bird in the ecosystem. Uh, active flycatcher, uh, insect control. They're only found on Tinian. Nowhere else in the world. So. Establishing a secondary safety population is of critical importance.
Sorry, no, it was a little long, but I feel like the Toledo Zoo did a really good job of kind of capturing um, We've been hammered by this problem and other conservation problems for a long time. So the biggest concern for us, of course, is death. I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, um, so now I'm going to go into a little bit about what being on the field team um, for this whole translocation process is like. Uh, so Rob and I kind of went back and forth going um, going on these trips. Uh, he went in 2015 and 2018. I went in 2016 and 2017. And both times I was on the opening crew and both times Rob was on the closing crew. Uh, so we're each going to talk a little bit about what that sort of meant. Um, so as part of the opening crew or startup crew, um, basically the, the idea is to kind of um, set everything up to start catching the birds and taking care of them. Um, so this is, a, this is a good picture. So there's usually about 10 to 15 zookeepers who um, are, are in each crew. Um, kind of the first thing that we do when we get to, we were in Saipan one year and Tinian one year, but once we get to the island, um, is kind of go in and retrieve supplies. There's a big shipping container um, that you have to kind of machete your way into um, when you first land because every year it gets so overgrown with different vines. Um, but grabbing the field equipment is kind of the first thing that we do when we get to the island. Uh, and then we go right into there we go. Um, setting up the area where we're going to be temporarily holding the birds once we catch them out in the field. Um, and so the area or the, the room that we use is in the world's most understanding hotel, um, the, what is it, the summer holiday in Saipan, um, who have a, a long-standing relationship with the MAC program. Um, they're a very sweet family that own this little hotel and they just allow the program to take over it every spring um, when we do this project. And so there's one room that's kind of designated as the bird husbandry room. So as birds are caught out into the field, they're brought back into this room. So one of the first things we need to do when we get to the island is kind of get this all set up so that we can start catching birds and start bringing them in. Um, so the first thing we have to do is start, uh, oops, excuse me. Oh, there you go. Uh, assembling these bird boxes so that what we're going to be keeping the birds in. Um, so all of them were, are disassembled in, those, uh, in that big storage container that I was talking about earlier. Um, and there's over 100 of these that we usually need to set up for, um, for capturing the birds. And this is what the bird room looks like when we're all done. So we usually, uh, like I said, it's some, somewhere between 80 and 100 bird boxes that are set up, depending on how many birds we are targeting that year. Uh, and every field season, we are targeting a specific species or two specific species. Um, so kind of depending on what those species need, we'll set up the room accordingly. So when we were, um, both Rob and I experienced getting uh, Rufus fantails, which are insectivores and need to eat flies. So on top of having to get everything set up for their housing, we had to uh, make fly traps using dead fish <laughs> and um, actually make sure that we had enough flies to hold, I think when I went, it was about 60 tinian, um, excuse me, uh, Rufus fantails. Um, some of the birds that we catch are frugivores, so having fruit for them to eat or in other kinds of insectivores. Um, but this is really where also just having husbandry professionals, zookeepers, bird keepers um, as part of this project is so essential. They're not just there for a field trip. This is a, an unusual project in that we're holding these birds for over a week at a time in captivity, and we need to be able to watch them, monitor them, and that's a skill set that zookeepers are able to bring to the table. Um, and then we get to go out into the field and start uh, and use our machetes. This is my favorite part of the whole project, um, is going out into the field and first just kind of uh, clearing pathways for us to hike around and get to sites where we know the birds are, and also to set up areas where we can set up mist nets. So you guys probably noticed in that video a lot of people untangling birds from these thin spindly nets. Those are called mist nets. And in order to set them up, you usually need to clear out a pretty wide space of land. Um, and so when we're doing this, we're usually trying to target the invasive species of plant as much as possible. There's not a lot of point in trying to save the endemic birds of the island when we're just hacking through the endemic plants of the island. Um, so one of the things that we try to do is make sure that we're um, you know, going and hacking through invasive plants more so than native plants. But ultimately what we're trying to do 
getting there. There we go. Is get these nice pathways set up. And again, here is a nice uh, lane for us to set up our mist net. So a mist net is kind of set up like a volleyball net um, with just a really kind of thin threaded net across. And it, the birds don't see them, and they fly right in. And that's how we catch all the birds in the program. And then, like I said, we also need to just make sure that there are pathways for us to walk around the forest um, to be able to constantly be checking the nets. And this is ultimately what one looks like. So this is in kind of a more open field area. This is where I believe we were catching the Marianas fruit doves, um, which kind of tended to fly around in more open areas. But you can see, maybe you can kind of see, um, so this is one, one side of the net, and the other one is kind of out of the frame. Um, but you can kind of just barely see the net, and that's, that's the whole point, is that the birds don't see them and they're able to fly right in. Sorry. And then hopefully, this is what happens. Your target species flies into the net, and then you're able to um, untangle them and get them out. And so this is where a skill set comes in that has to be developed while you are out in the field. Um, and so this is a very kind of careful process, pulling a bird out of a mist net. Um, it's something that, as now that the project has kind of developed and become kind of a working machine, usually the method is that only experienced people first start out pulling the birds out, while inexperienced keepers um, maybe observe a couple times, then get to work on pulling a bird out um, with a little bit of guidance. And ultimately, everyone usually gets to um, pull at least a couple birds out, and it's a pretty satisfying experience. So this is me pulling out a Mariana fruit dove. And one of the tools that we use to kind of help in um, freeing the birds from the nets are these little uh, sewing needles. It's just a plastic needle with a really blunt, and it's not sharp at all. Um, but that's to just kind of help disentangle it from, from the net, make sure that um, we're not hurting the bird in the process. And then hopefully, you get an animal that's safely removed. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so then what happens when the wrong bird flies in? So you set up these nets in these open areas, in areas that you know that your target species is um, around. And a lot of times, you get the wrong bird that flies in more often than not, actually. Um, so this is a bittern that flew into our net at one point. And it's usually the birds that you're not trying to catch that are the hardest to untangle and put up the biggest fight. Um, so usually by the end of it, all of us are pretty covered in, in bites and scratches. Um, one time, one of the field sites, I had a chicken flew in and was fun, knocked down the entire net. Um, so we not only had to untangle it, we had to reset up all of the nets. Um, and this is, I wanted to include these photos because I think both Rob and I, our favorite birds are these collared kingfishers and they love to bite. So just it kind of, they kind of get to, get back at you a little bit as you're pulling them out of the net. But as, if you get the wrong bird, pretty straightforward, you just release it. Let's get a picture of Rob releasing. Um, so then, once you have your target species, uh, it goes into a little bit of temporary housing. Usually when we're walking around in the field, we're carrying these little cloth bags with us. Um, once we remove a bird that is one that we're looking for, we'll quickly put it in one of those little bags, run it over to the area where we have some little temporary bird boxes set up um, that have food and water, and then we'll just put them in there. And then there's constantly some field team members who are just running birds back and forth from the field back to the bird room back at the hotel. And then the closing crew comes in. Thanks. So a little, uh, little note to what um, Katie was talking about, too. The islands were so decimated after World War II that the soil was literally running off into the ocean. So the Army Corps of Engineers and the Navy and a couple of the other agencies quickly responded, and they went and they reseeded the island with a plant called Tangan Tangan, which is actually a South American plant. But it, grows really, really fast, and it really held the soil together. So now when you go to the islands, it's hard not to find areas that are covered in the tang and tang. And it's amazing because we go back to the same areas and trap again the next year, it's all covered like we'd never been there with a machete before. So you're constantly re-macheting your way back into these areas. Um, Which is pretty fun. It, it is pretty fun. You feel like the machete. You be a little careful. I don't think we've ever had a serious injury. Um, this is the field camp, so when we first get there, we set up a, a little tarp structure and set up our coolers and, and drinks and such. 
And it's pretty reliable that we leave the stuff there every night and when we go back to the hotel to take care of the birds and then we come back out about five o'clock in the morning to set up our tents. And it's a little bit like fishing, so you have to show up early for some reason. <laughs> in fishing, that's true too, but the birds are more active in the morning. You wanna get set up before they're actually out and doing their flyways. And then you have to check the nets on a pretty regular basis because the birds get in there and they can quickly overheat and they can pass away from the, the experience. So part of this process is walking the entire loop and checking all the nets every 15 minutes. That's about the maximum time that the birds can be in the net before you have to find them and untangle them and, and get them either free or put them in the boxes. There's a lot more to it as well. The nets have to be rolled up every night and carefully marked with tape to make sure everybody can see them. We don't want any birds getting caught in there at night. And there's cows everywhere on the island. And they run through these areas and if the nets are down, they're gonna destroy the nets. And so we have to pretty carefully monitor our equipment through the whole process. When we uh, get the birds back and we're getting them ready to ship out and we can either transport them by helicopter, which we've done some years, or by boat, and I'll explain a little bit more about the boat ride um, in a minute, um, but we have to get them ready. So the birds all need a physical, um, they may need medical care. We had one bird come in that had a, um, a mass on it. We were able to surgically remove the mass, but that bird, because of its medical condition, wasn't a translocation option. So we treated the bird for a while, gave it some antibiotics, and released it back on site. Um, so there's a lot that goes into the care of the birds. And as you can see, they're pretty tiny. Right here on the left picture, what they're doing is that they just poke the bird with a little insulin needle just in the vein underneath the wing. And now they're using a capillary tube to collect a small amount of blood so we can run a blood sample. In addition to the carrying of the birds, we were actually doing research as well. So uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom was working on uh, fecal uh, birds and looking for cortisol levels, which is stress hormones that are in the birds' uh, feces. And so we were collecting fecal samples every day. And taking care of the birds and collecting the fecal samples may sound simple, but there's 100 birds in there. So it takes a crew of about four people doing the vet exams and the care for the birds and making food and tending the flies. I should say you get rankings for the flies too. I made Duke this year, so I don't know where that is in the chain, but it's pretty high. That means that I went down and successfully haggled with the lady to buy our, fit, our fresh fish, rot the fish beforehand, put it in a cage, collect the flies. It's a process. I'm proud of that Duke thing. Then we have to transport the birds. So after we do all this care and capture and take care of them, uh, we have to, this sounds simple, but we actually have to secure transport. And almost always, every trip I've been on, and I think the ones you've been on too, we didn't know when we were getting our boat until the very last day. And so we've often having to extend our trip there until the governor of the CNMI signs the paperwork to get the boat. Um, it almost historically goes later than what we think. So we have to make sure we have enough food for the the birds, which goes back to catching more flies again. Um, mealworms, which are one of the food sources that we feed, are invasive there, so we have a permit to bring mealworms into the islands, and we only bring in enough to take care of the birds for so long. So we start ration, rationing out those mealworms and picking through them on the floor to make sure we've got enough so that none of them go to waste. And then once we, uh, we get off the boat, um, providing it makes it to these small islands, there's a story there. Um, then we have to get the birds up to the release site. It's not just take them to the beach and release them. We wanna give the birds the best possible chance. And so that means macheting our way up a volcano in some cases, and then carrying the birds on our back um, up to those location sites. So this is uh, me carrying one of the, or two sets of the bird boxes up the, uh, the volcano and it's only, uh, 50, 100 yards up there through the forest, but it's pretty steep on the sides. And then we've cleared out a little site that you saw earlier on the video for the release. And then we, once we get all the boxes up there, then we started opening the slats one at a time and releasing the birds. And you can see how this process works. So this is a golden white eye. I believe that's a Rufus fantail down there. Can't quite tell that blur. And uh, each one of the boxes is really meticulously marked so we know exactly what bird is in there. Each bird is banded so that when we find them later on on the island, hopefully we know which bird it is and from which collection. Sometimes we release from multiple collections in different years, so 2016, 2017, and we have the birds banded for easy identification to know which year we collected them at. And I'm going to turn this over to Katie to talk a little bit more about the results. 
So yeah, so altogether this project is a, it's a 30 year planned program. Um, so, so far, these are some of kind of the results that we've had. Um, this is just a list of what species we have moved from what island to what island. So there's been three main islands um, of the northern remote islands that we've focused on bringing birds to. Um, and there's a lot that goes into planning what birds go to what island as well. Um, they try to make sure that they are birds that coexist well with each other, that work well with the, um, you know, the native plants and things like that on those remote islands. Um, so that's where kind of the planning on which birds go where um, ends up happening. But between um, 2008 and 2018, this is the number of birds that have been translocated. And then um, this is the most recent um, population survey of Sarigan, which is one of the uh, remote islands. Um, it was the first island that um, birds were translocated to since the project started. Um, and so this is where it's pretty cool that they've seen the results of the birds being moved and their success rate as far as populating the islands and breeding. Um, and you can see uh, the bridled wide-eye especially, which is a really, a really tiny, very cute little bird um, that generally is very populous on the Northern Mariana Islands, is doing great on Sarigan. Um, so in 2012, um, which was kind of in the midst of the collections of the other birds that were going to be released there, um, the initial population estimate of the bridled wide-eye was about 3,000. Uh, in 2016, it was about 9,000. So the bridled wide-eyes are doing really well on Sarigan. Um, and these censuses are taken by um, CNMI Fish and Wildlife. Um, and then the golden wide-eye, which was translocated in 2011-2012, now they're about 714 um, after translocating 74. The Mariana fruit dove, 35, there's now 86. Um, and again, Mariana fruit doves are um, a lot fewer and far between on the islands. They don't tend to populate as quickly. Um, so these numbers, these numbers are relatively well representative of how the birds should be populating the island. Um, and then again, Rufus fantail, 83 birds released between the two years. Um, and now there's over 1,000 of them. So the birds are doing very well in their new island homes. Um, and then this is just sort of a list of kind of what's next for the program. So this is the list of um, birds that are coming up as target species in the next several years and some more of the northern islands um, that they're going to be moved to. And then one of the really awesome parts of this program that's a little bit newer um, is their outreach program. And that's something that um, fortunately I didn't get to participate in, but Rob got to participate in a little bit. And they've actually even, a lot of the zoos um, that are participating are not only sending zookeepers or husbandry staff, but also sending educators out here just for this purpose. Um, but I'll let Rob talk a little bit more about it since he got to participate. Yeah, We're running out of time a little bit, so I'm going to go fairly quickly through this. Every, uh, every fifth grade student on the island of Saipan is required to come down and do a, um, I'll call it a conservation fair, where they go down and they learn all about the island, the history, uh, recycling, plastics, um, how to use chemicals, uh, about the MAC program, a little bit of everything. So the kids get a real environmental studies by meeting all the different organizations that participate in it. In addition to that, um, we're very active online. We're very active through our facilities that participate in the program. You saw the Toledo Zoo did the, the video that they put out as well. And then in addition, we go to schools there and we participate. We take bird boxes and show them what we catch the birds in. We show them how a mist net works, how we house the birds, how we feed the birds, the permits that we need for the mealworms, the boats and uh, ask a lot of questions. We take cards and hand out cards to the kids showing them what birds live on their island. And a lot of the birds have sent, or a lot of the kids will say, oh, I've seen this bird. Or some of the kids that are you know, even older will say, I've never seen this bird. I had no idea it lived on my island. And so it's really a, a good education for them. We're trying to really make sure that they're the, the population that's going to be able to take care of the birds as time goes on. So we're really trying to win them over, teach them about what they have that's really unique to them, and how best to, to help themselves out to manage it and make sure that these birds will be around for a long period of time. We were talking earlier about it, and a lot of us we're a little bit spoiled in the sense that we've got tons of animals. We've got lots of megafauna that live in the continental United States. 
This is all they have. The birds there and a, a few reptiles are really all the, the mega fauna that you'd ever see there. So they just don't have too much. And so it's really, really particularly important to take care of what little bit that they have that exists on these islands. We're very proud of the fact that the Pacific Bird Conservation Organization uh, just received its uh, status. So it's finally a certified nonprofit. And so now donations can go directly to it through this website as well. And that was a big step for the program that's been around for a long time, but just finally achieved that major step. That's all we had. We wanted to thank you for it. And we do um, want to pass it over to Jerry. Thank you. Thank you, Rob and Katie, for a great story and a very interesting and important project. Who has the first question? Is this where you're going to go on your next vacation? <laughs> we actually come home for vacation. That's an amazing program, and congratulations and thanks to you guys for doing it. Where did the brown tree snake originally originate from? That's an interesting question because we're not actually sure. Some people hypothesize it came from Vietnam area, uh, Southeast China, and then there's also some theories that it came from um, Australia and New Guinea in that area of the world. There was so much cargo moving back and forth, and, and I don't know that anybody knows for sure, and a lot of the animals were moving around to different spots there. But for some reason, Guam was really the, uh, the place where the brown tree snake took off and did the most damage. On most of the mainlands that it lives on, it's not that damaging. It's, uh, it's kind of a minor species there that people don't talk about or, or never recognize. But on that island in particular, it destroyed everything. And it's been a very uh, serious threat to all the other small islands in the area. And as we know from Hawaii, and you saw the graph that Katie had up there about that, um, when you have invasive species that do get into these places, it can be very, very damaging and overwhelming to the ecosystem. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're usually part of the cause, if not the whole cause for it, but yeah, absolutely. Other questions? Go ahead, back there and then up here. Have, um, uh, how did the uh, typhoons and super typhoons that we've been reading about recently affect uh, both the birds and your conservation effort? Uh, so I was, I was actually just looking at that. They, act, they have a really, um, Pacific Bird Conservation has a really great, very active Facebook and website like Rob was saying. So I've been kind of watching and, and reading and you know, most of these birds who have evolved on these islands are, are pretty resilient to storms and, and weather like that. Um, I'm guessing, you know, the really we're only out there for the field season once a year. It's in the spring. Um, and so my, my guess is the biggest issue will be clearing away that <laughs> the debris from around that storage unit to get all the supplies. Um, as far as the birds go, I'm not sure as you know how how they're doing. I think, um, like I said, most most of these island birds have evolved to be pretty resilient to things like hurricanes and those big tropical storms. Um, but I guess we'll we'll find out next field season. Yeah, I think one of the big problems that you see there, and, and there was some evidence of this on Saipan, where if you go to the airport, the vegetation is very low, and it's like, oh, that's interesting that they crop it. I wouldn't expect them to crop it in that area. Oh no, that's typhoon damage that had blown down from a previous typhoon that had been there. I think the, the bigger impact than actually killing the birds or blowing them out to sea is that it destroys their food supply. A lot of these birds, the little white eyes that you saw and the golden white eyes and the bridled white eyes are particularly fruit eaters. And so they're reliant on papaya, which isn't native there either. It was introduced, but they're eating a variety of fruits. And when the fruits are all blown down or destroyed, that really impacts their population over time. They recover quickly, as you can see from the numbers, but it does impact them. You had a very successful count of the birds that was done by somebody else. And I'm wondering, how is that count performed? Because you had to catch them in nets to know what birds you had. And of course, you're not going to catch them in nets again in order to count them. So did you have observers? And some of those kids in the classrooms, I'm thinking, could do that too. Well, mo most of the birds that were that were being counted in those charts were, oh, those are on the north, north remote islands where there are no people or, or less than 10 people or so. So it's mostly conducted um, by the fish and wildlife of, of CNMI, so workers for fish and wildlife where they go out. And I, I'm actually not sure how they, how they census the birds, um, kind of what algorithm they use to calculate 9,000 
9,000 birds, but it, um, you know, I'm guessing. They don't spot 9,000. Right. <laughs> I'm guessing it's just a, a certain area that they, you know, count the birds in and then they're able to multiply it. Yeah, we, we used formulas for that, for, for determining density. So what they're doing is they're going out binoculars and they're spotting those bands that we talked about. And they see a bird without a band, they know that's a new bird. That was one that was reproduced on that island. And so that's really one of the key indicators they're looking for. But they're also looking for survivability of the birds that we've released. So they're looking for the different band colors because they can't get close enough to see the numbers, but they tell them what year that bird was translocated there, and then they're able to extrapolate. And so when you do, uh, when you when you walk through a section of the woods and you say, okay, I did, you know, 100 by 100, then you can come up with a formula. Well, if there's 20 birds in this, then there's 20 in this, this, and this, and then you come up with your magic number to get to 9,000. How did the birds on these islands survive the mosquitoes? Because it's mosquitoes that have killed almost all the native birds on Kauai and below 4,000 feet, they call the mosquito line. So how do these ones survive? Yeah, I knew you were gonna kick this one over <laughs> to me. I don't know. Um, a, lot of, a lot of birds develop immunity to uh, the things that are the threats for, you know, in their area. There wasn't a ton of mosquitoes there, and I have not studied this at all, but I wasn't particularly bothered by mosquitoes. I don't think that they exist in large numbers, and it might be partly a factor of the wind there. Mosquitoes don't usually occur in areas where there's a lot of wind um, in coastal areas. You know, they're more in standing water, still areas that you find them in. Um, doesn't seem to be a problem. I don't... Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, but in this area, geography, you know, ocean currents. Um, I just don't think there was a lot of them, but I could be totally wrong on that, so don't quote me. There's a ton of flies there, and a lot of the flies are introduced. Every once in a while when we were doing our fly traps and catching the flies coming out into the petri dishes, you would see some of the native flies, and you realized how few of them there were that actually lived. These were all introduced fly species as well, and I assume there's probably mosquitoes there in some parts. There's the are the invasive plants gonna pose any form of an issue? with the maybe fruit growing plants that are there, do we think? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of the, the trees and things that have been brought in there um, actually provide food for the animals and they don't seem to be problematic that way. One of the things that's particularly troublesome or, or hard to deal with there is that there's only a little bit of soil actually growing on the surface. It's a limestone based or volcanic based um, rocky island. So the plants that actually live there have to be able to live in that very um, hard uh, alkaline environment that is created by that too. And I just don't, I think that's probably the reason you don't see some of the typical plants we'd expect to see in the tropics, but other ones do pretty well, like papayas are everywhere. And the bridled wide eyes love the papayas, mm -hmm. the, the little birds that we were showing. Yeah, and it was, it's a real bummer when you get out to a papaya tree and you see this beautiful papaya and you do this work macheting in and fighting through the spider webs. They've got these incredible spider webs there that you have to fight through. They literally will stop you in your tracks until you lean forward and push through them. So you get to the papaya and you take it down and they've already found it, so they've eaten it all out. It's hollow, but it looks good from one side. We have one back here. I was curious, when y'all were releasing translocated species, did you have multiple sites set up for release? Were you worried about intraspecific competition or were the animals good about dispersing from the initial release site? Yeah, no, to answer your question. Um, we're just happy enough to get off the boat safely and get onto the island and climb up the hill and get to one site, more or less. If they told me I was going to two, I think I would have protested and swam back. Um, most of these islands, though, are so small that releasing them on the island is just fine. It's kind of funnily. Um, when you get to the island, you're not sure if you can actually land. It depends on the tides and it depends on what the setup is. And there's no, there's no docks, there's no port. Um, you're taking the small boat from the big boat over to a rocky ledge and hoping you can jump out and hand the birds out successfully. You know, we always consider the uh, plan B, get as close to it as we can, point the birds the right direction, open the door and hope they fly that way. Um, it's like a 16 that's, hour boat ride, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was like an all night boat ride for us to do it, you know, and I was like, oh no, these birds are getting off the boat. Uh, we have one right point. here. So why do you think it's important that zoos and aquaria do this type of conservation work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think there's a couple levels of it. Like I was saying, I think the, the part of this field work that I think is pretty unique among bird field work, I think there's, there's a lot of field techs who are trained in mist netting and you know, helping, helping monitor birds. But as far as 
you know, keeping them healthy in an, you know, in a captive area for a significant amount of time. I think that's where zookeepers are, play a really essential role in this project. So people who are familiar with birds, familiar with monitoring birds and, um, you know, locating issues with the captive birds. Um, I think that's where zookeepers play an essential role. And I think also just, you know, educationally, like most of the facilities who are out here um, working on this project also are taking care of these birds in these captive breeding programs back at their own zoos. So they get to learn, um, you know, an invaluable amount about the birds out in their natural habitat, as well as just getting to educate the public about you know, what's going on in this tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean um, that's, I think, really influential. And I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what's being done here, I think, can probably be applied to other endangered birds in, you know, all over the planet. We have another one over here. Do you tag the birds when you catch them? And if you do, from uh, translocation or otherwise, do you have any evidence of island hopping? Some of the birds do island hop, um, but not the ones that we collect. If they will island hop on their own, we don't add them to our list because we know that they'll make their way there. Those collared kingfishers that, oh, eh, no, we don't have any right now. Those collared kingfishers that we had, Katie and I were holding, they island hop like crazy. They're all over all the islands there, and they do it on their own. They're very strong flyers, and they're good at doing that. Um, the smaller birds, those little bright old white eyes that we chose, tiny little, they do not island hop. So they're very, very specific to the island that they stay at. You, de you determine the island hopping by the tagging, I presume. Is that correct? We do. We do. And all the birds are tagged. And um, even the golden white eyes and the bridled white eyes are on an island about six miles apart, but you typically don't see both species on either island. So there's some territoriality probably to that as well. We're going to take one more, and the microphone is coming to you. Hey, um, for future island locations for the translocation, I saw Rhoda on the list. Uh, Rhoda currently has a really bad feral cat population because they were introduced there. Do you guys know if there's a plan in place to eradicate those before introducing any of these translocated birds? It's Rhoda, Rhoda's the one that where the swiftlets they're looking at. So there, there's one specific species of bird that are these, these cave swiftlets um, that Rhoda is the plan for them in particular. Um, and so I'm not sure about their susceptibility to feral cats or, or what the plan is with that. Yeah, you know, there's feral cats everywhere. One of the things that we had to deal with when we were catching birds on Tinian and True of Saipan is that if the birds are in the net, the cats will come get them out of the net. I think we had one case of that on Tinian the first year that I went where we didn't get to the bird in time. Um, so that does happen there as well. There's dogs. I had to fight dogs to get my McDonald's every morning when I would go because there's just packs of dogs running everywhere too. So I think that's just pretty ubiquitous in the island. Some of the animals are there to stay and, and you have to find the right species that's going to be able to survive in that habitat with those animals. The beauty of those northern islands is that they don't have those species there. You know, rats, cats, dogs, those are the things that um, on top of brown tree snakes really create a lot of problems. And they've released the large ungulates, or they've removed the large ungulates that they could. Katie and Rob, thank you for a, a wonderful story and thank you for involving this aquarium in that important work. We don't want you to have to wait very long for a, another great lecture, so be here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Randy Rochon, who is a professor at the Boston University, and she's going to talk about the Phoenix Islands and a very remote area in the Pacific. This is one of the largest protected areas in the, in the world, and um, this aquarium now is deeply involved in research in the Phoenix Islands, so we'll hope, we hope we'll see you tomorrow to hear all about this program. Thank you all for coming. That was well, very well done. Thank you. Very well done.